It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Rivals. People competing with another for the same objective or superiority in the same field of activity. Fantastic rivalry. It was intense. A lot of passion showed in it. I think the game that both teams look forward to every season. There's no walks of life where people go to work with two ambulances behind them. We know how dangerous it is. Both chasing the same goals and dreams. I remember feeling really sorry for him. I knew I was going to beat him. I think there was needle between the teams, but just through wanting to beat each other so badly. You know, there was a mutual respect. Each fighting against the other. I thought, wow, that looks like a broken man. I thought, wow, is it really that serious? when you're suffering and someone's better than you on the day and you're doing everything you possibly can to hold on to, to them and not let that gap get any bigger than a metre and you're praying for the end to come or you're praying for the next corner so you can rest a little bit. They're the hardest days. In this series, we bring together famous sporting rivals to hear a shared story from both sides. The triumph, the tragedies, the victories, the near misses, the laughter and the sorrow. This is reunited on TalkSport. During the 1980s, British athletics was blessed with three exceptional middle-distance runners, Seb Cow, Steve Avett, and Steve Cram. Between them, they would claim Olympic, World, European and Commonwealth titles and smash world records on a regular basis. Now, many decades later, we're going to reunite two of this famous trio to get the inside story of an extraordinary time for British sport. This is Reunited with Seb Coe and Steve Cram. Growing up in the 70s, both were obsessed with sport as kids. But for Steve Cram, athletics wasn't his first love. It was all about football, and that's really where I threw all my attention in to begin with. And then, but then the cross-country season got going, and I found I was coming in first in the class, and then I got to run for the school against other schools, and that was fun, and I, was, I wasn't winning, but I was you know, up there fourth, fifth, sixth or something. And then the summer came around, the first summer of you know, senior school, so I was 12, and I ran the 400 metres for my school, against some of the lads I'd been running across country and some of the lads that played football. And, the, and it's amazing how, even at that stage, the, the reason why I ended up joining the athletic club was because there was a lad called Brian Heron, who was a great little footballer, and he used to make my life hell when we played his team. And he was in the 400 metres the first week, and he beat me by about three, four yards. And the second week, I was like, yeah, I'm going to get him. And, and I did, and I beat him. But I, what I didn't know was he was in the athletic club as well. And then Jimmy Headley, who was the coach of the Athletic Club, great old guy, came over and said, that was a good run, Bonnie lad, well done, you know that lad you've beat's quite good, do you want to come and join the Athletic Club? While Seb Coe dabbled with football and cricket, he always had the desire to run. It was just the fact I loved running. And my parents, if they were here in this room, would tell you that I ran everywhere. I think you've got to have an innate love, you've got to feel a freedom that running gives you. And I'd, it's very difficult unless you really feel that for people to want to spend a lot of time running. So I guess it was, it's, wasn't that track and field was such an attractive thought. It was just the fact I just love running. Both boys quickly showed early promise. Steve Cram. I was asked, you know, did I want to run in, in my first race? And it was actually a 1500 metre race and it sounded a bit far, but hey. And it was at Gypsy's Green Stadium. I ran the under 13, 1500 metres. 
And a certain two men called Brendan Foster and Dave Bedford were running. And so there was 10,000 people there. It was exciting. It was, you know, something which I'd never had before. I came second. I won a set of cufflinks for coming second and an ornamental cannon as well because we won the team race. Took them home. You know, I'd never won any. I'd won one medal in football in, in playing since I was six or seven. So everyone says, oh, you must have had a dream or a love to do athletics. It, it wasn't that. It was, it was two things. It was one, the basic thing that, that we all respond to, which was a bit of recognition and success. I got my name in the Shields Gazette. I got my name read out in the, in the school assembly. I won something, you know, just basic human instincts of the things we all like. And secondly, that, that it brought out an individual competitiveness in me that I didn't know I had. Seb Coe. But I started as a sprinter. You know, it was the summer months for me was was about, you know, it was the old handicap 100 metres where you started off, you know, 10 paces or 14 paces or whatever it was. And then I started to drift into cross country and it became pretty clear, I think, to the club and to my old man that I could run all day. I was quick, I could sprint, but there was always going to be a physical limitation to my ability to to be a top-class sprinter, although it, it sort of came handy as a skill in, you know, in, in middle-distance events. But no, it, it became distance, and then Sunday mornings was classically being thrown in against the senior cross-country runners and distance guys in the club and, you know, a fleet of cars from the coaches and, you know, the parents would sort of rescue at various points. So it wasn't unusual for me to be at the age of 14 even doing 10 miles cross-country on a, on a Sunday morning with the guys. While Seb Cole moved from sprinter to middle-distance runner, Steve Cram realised that it was in running and not his beloved football in which he really excelled. So I made a decision then uh, at age 14, which at school is difficult because athletics isn't a team sport at school. And so that was the key thing. And then it was cemented, I think, probably not that summer, but two summers later, but when I really... Things take a little bit of time. So I, I would say for that next year, 18 months, I really started to train differently, train hard. And in the summer, two summers after that, I broke the British record for a 16-year-old in, in May. And I think... That's when I started to make headlines and really, you know, that's when I really thought, hey, hang on a minute, you know, you you really are at a level that means you've got an opportunity to do something here. I, I don't think it's 16 you think in those terms, but you, you kind of get it. You kind of know I'm, I'm good at this, which helps. Seb Coe. Winning a county championship uh, on the track and on the cross country, which is what I did. And Yorkshire, particularly in cross country, was a, that was quite a strong county to, to emerge from. So it then became English schools. And then after that, I had a season out with injury. 74 was a complete write-off. I got stress fractures, not unusual at that age. Uh, and then 75, I was sort of thrown into the junior ranks and had made my debut against France and Spain at Worley and won the 1,500 metres that day as a junior athlete, uh, GB junior. And that got me selected for the European... Uh, junior championships in Athens, the old Karaskakis Stadium, uh, and I got a bronze in the 1,500 metres. So I guess winning a European junior medal, the English schools, I guess, had raised my profile. But in terms of the interest and attention from what was the old British Amateur Athletic Board, I guess they were then, I was then very firmly on their radar screen. With both athletes advancing through the ranks, it was inevitable their worlds would collide. But can Steve and Seb remember when they first met? Steve's four years younger than me, so I'm guessing he will have been in some of the youth and maybe even boys' events in northern counties. Were different counties, of course. I was, I was Yorkshire. But I seem to want to remember him beginning to emerge around that period and people beginning to talk about this tall kid from the sort of, he wouldn't like me to say this, of course, the Newcastle area, but he's a, he's a Macken. Steve Crum. So I went down to compete in this under-15s or under-16, 1500, whatever it was, and the next stage group up, which was the under-20s, and this Sebastian Coe, who I'd read about in Athletics Weekly, and I was going, oh, that Sebastian Coe's going to be here, you know, and he'd been breaking lots of records and things, and I don't know what I was expecting, because I hadn't really... I'd seen pictures of him, 
But I was, I don't know, I was quite tall by then and, you know, and, and a lot of the people I was running against were. And so the, the, it was, I think it was a thousand metre race and it lines up and they're going, which one is he, which one is he? And I said, that, what, that little kid, you know, he, he looked like he was in the wrong age group, you know what I mean? After making a name in the junior ranks, Sepko continued his athletics career while studying at Loughborough University. I made a massive breakthrough in just one race at Stretford in what was the, it was the Stretford League. I think it was a British Milers Club race. I just ran gun to tape and ran 147 and bits. I think my previous personal best was around about 151. So I took about four seconds off. And I remember driving back across the Snake Pass from Manchester to Sheffield with my old man. And we sort of sat there you know, in sort of companionable silence about half the journey. And I remember him looking across at me in the passenger seat saying, I think we might have found your distance. Had I run that time, actually, earlier in the season, it might just have been enough to have got me to the Montreal Games. And I always look back and think, actually, that might have, that would have been a very helpful experience for me because I wouldn't have probably run with such an experience in Moscow particularly at 800 metres, but that, that's another story. By 1978, Sebco's career was beginning to take off, and this inadvertently would offer an opportunity for the young Steve Cram. In May 1978, it was my last year of, of running for my schools in the English Schools Championship. I somehow had mentioned to the guy who puts the entries in that I might be on some British junior camp, which I never was. It was wishful thinking. Anyway, he didn't put my entry in. So when I turned up for the... Durham County Championships, they said, Steve, you're not entered. You can't run. And I said, well, by the way, I'm the only guy who's going to win for Durham. So they said, you can run, and if anyone complains, we have to disqualify you. So I thought, right, I'm going to run so hard. So I front ran 342 for 1,500 metres, and everybody, including myself, was aghast. Brendan Foster was there watching. Brendan rang somebody up. The next day I got a telegram. Might have to explain what telegrams are to people, but anyway, I got a telegram inviting me to Crystal Palace to run the Emsley Car Mile. About two weeks after that, I run 3.57 in the Emsley Car Mile, break the world record for a 17-year-old for the mile. As I go to the warm-down area, um, a couple of the officials who are in charge of the England selection came up and said, would you like to go to the Commonwealth Games? I sort of said, when is it? I've got a holiday booked with my family. <laughs> um, in fact, where is it? Um, so it's in Canada in three weeks' time. You know, do you want to be part of the team? And the reason they were able to ask me was because Konovet had decided not to go to the Commonwealth and contest that because they were going to focus on the European Championships, which were two, three weeks later back in Europe. So they inadvertently, they didn't know, but they opened a door for me. So by chance... I go to the Commonwealth Games, learn a lot, came last in the heat, but it set me up for the, for the rest of my career. At the aforementioned 1978 European Championship, Seb Coe won a bronze medal. The following year would be even more special. Coe broke three world records and was named Athlete of the Year. 60 metres left and Coe comes home so far in front the rest of So with the 1980 Moscow Olympics on the horizon, it was clear Great Britain would be sending a team with definite medal chances. That's if they actually sent a team. In the British House of Commons, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher pledged the British government's support for the proposed US boycott, and a few days later, Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser of Australia. Following the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, many countries, including the USA, decided to boycott the games. But the UK government left the decision to compete down to the individual athlete. No, I was always pretty clear, and there was a lot of pressure. And even you know, as a government minister, a very senior minister, actually asked my father to come in and asked him to sort of keep me quiet because I was a bit noisy on the subject. And I remember my father, well, I wasn't there, but my father said to him, and I know this from a third party, said, look, you know, I don't speak on his behalf. He's just done a degree in economics and history. I'm guessing he can figure this out for himself. Steve Crum. My biggest issue for me was my dad was a policeman. And I was very well known in the northeast by then. And I think my dad felt a little bit of the pressure that, that as part of the establishment, that there might be some kickback there. 
But he was great, and I think most people around were of the view that, and bear in mind I lived in the northeast of England, and it was a conservative government, Mrs Thatcher was the prime minister, so she could have been saying, I don't want you to drink milk anymore, and everyone would have rebelled against that. So you know, there was almost a bit of, hey, you're, you show them, Bonnie Lard, you, you know, make sure you get... There was, a, there was a lot of support, but not for one minute did I, did I consider not going. Still to come on Reunited on TalkSport. Had a shocker in the 800 metres, partly through inexperience and partly through my own blunders. I remember sitting in Brendan's office. He abruptly interrupted me and just went, oh, when are you going to stop being a promising youngster and actually win something? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Reunited on TalkSport. In part one, we heard former athletes Seb Coe and Steve Cram talk individually about their early careers. But as our story reaches the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow, it's time to reunite them in the studio. In Moscow, both athletes would compete at their first Olympic Games. But while Cole was seen as a nailed-on medal chance, especially in his favoured 800 metres, the young Steve Cram had different ambitions. Just pleased to be there in many respects. I, no, it was you know, an opportunity for me. We've talked before about just being there and, and observing these guys and what they were going through and how they were conducting themselves and all of that. Was, so there was a one level that was a learning experience. And then the, from, athle- from an athletic point of view, a different learning experience, first time you know, at an Olympics, but also trying to find where my level was. First up for Seb was the 800 metres, where he would face another British rival in the shape of Steve Ovette. Cole was the reigning world record holder but things didn't go to plan. No, I'd had a shocker in the 800 metres, partly through inexperience and partly through my own blunders. I'd had a fairly, I think you'd best describe it as a sort of factory floor conversation with my old man about, you know, why I was in the sport and what what I had to do to sort of turn it round. Yeah, it was a fairly interesting three days that athletes go through when they're sort of trying to pull the knitting back together. Oddly enough, the the thing, and and I'm sitting here, the thing that resonated with me, I think I seem to remember most, was actually your, your press conference um, kind of afterwards. I think. After the eight? Yeah. And <sighs> I, it, I do remember that. I, yeah. I, I didn't know Seb very well <laughs> at that point. And, I, and I'll be brutally honest, you know, I think you know, it was a surprise result for most people, but, you know, all right, okay, well, that's when the 800. And, but I remember sitting watching the press conference and he, I thought, wow, that looks like a broken man. You know, that that's somebody who... Um, 
you, it, it really, I don't know why, it really hit home to you. I was 19 and I thought, wow, is it really that serious? <laughs> like, you know, I hadn't experienced anything like that. And I think it's the first time I sort of looked at that and I sort of took a long, hard swallow, thinking, wow, this is part of, you know, being at that level, which I hadn't yet experienced. I wasn't broken, but, you know, it was... But it, look, you know, you go in there as the world record holder, you go in there on paper two seconds faster than anybody else in the field and you screw up really badly. It was the 50 pound notes of journalistic currency. I think the one of the nationals ran a photograph of me training the following day and the headline was Coe's Trail of Shame. Mm. You know, I had journalists who wouldn't have known which way around the track you were running becoming instant experts about all the mistakes you'd made. And in fact, the funny thing was that um, I never we never really discussed it much with my old man. I mean, I remember a moment in the Olympic Village where he's sitting there and he's he wasn't a great, uh, if I'm being honest, he wasn't a great lover of journalists at the best of times. And some of them were coming up and offering advice. And, you know, in fairness, some were well-meaning and I think Bren came over and, and he sort of pulled out an old piece of paper. He was he started life as a mathematician, so numbers were really his thing. And he started throughout this sort of these various offers of, of, of support and help and advice, he was just kept scribbling and at the end of it he said, right, I've heard enough and they all sort of disappeared and he looked at me and he said, you know, it's really simple. Given the number of errors you made over the frequency with which you made them and over the distance that you made them, it is well nigh impossible for you to screw up that badly again in, <laughs> in a decade so the, the, the stats and the maths guy came to, and I have to be honest, that was about the only conversation we really had. And I think it's, uh, Steve, I think would probably agree with me. You know, when you're pulling yourself out of a hole, it's not really coaches that are doing that for you. You just have to sit and think about why you're in the sport, the years that you've already put in to get to that point the hundreds of hours, the thousands of miles, the you know, the tons of steel you've lifted in the weights room. And I just suddenly decided I wasn't going to go home empty-handed. Seb wouldn't leave Moscow empty-handed. He would take the gold in the 1500 metres, a race that saw Coe, Avet and Cram race together for the first time. And while many of the press pack might have been surprised by the result, Steve Cram can remember having doubts about Yvette's ability to claim a second Olympic title. I was very surprised how Yvette seemed a little bit preoccupied with where Seb was and what Seb was doing in that hour, you know, warming up, because uh, I was kind of kicking around with him. His coach, Harry Wilson, was looking after me. And, and even in the call-up room, etc. It, it looked to me like a man who I thought should be supremely confident seemed a little bit preoccupied still with his opponent so that that kind of put a it was something I, I think I picked up afterwards rather than but in the race it was a bit pedestrian early on and which suited me fine I was a bit tired after having you know got to the final and then uh, our good friend well I say good friend um, Jürgen Straub got things going um, yeah and suddenly the race was on and, and everyone gets moving and, and I'm I'm just running my race to hang on because it was hard. The last six, seven hundred metres was, was really hard. We came into the home straight and every, the race has gone away from me, obviously. And I was aware that I was last. Because there was only nine in the final and all of a sudden, and I had a, an, an almighty battle with a guy called Dragan Stravkovic of Yugoslavia mm. down the home straight uh, to avoid being last. And I, which, which sounds a bit stupid, but, you know, you, it, 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 any, any athlete, you, you'll fight, hopefully you'll fight for every place. Across the line, and this is the important thing, because of the expectation in my mind that Ovet would win this, I what it, what I was met with. So I've finished like three seconds after these guys. Seb is on his knees on the ground, pretty you know, sort of prostrate, and Ovet. Oh, this maybe took you know a few seconds afterwards, and Ovet's got an arm in the air, and I genuinely went to Ovet, congratulated him. <laughs> And I think I may well have patted Seb on the back and said, you know, tough luck or whatever. Completely and blissfully unaware <laughs> that Seb had actually won. And it wasn't until the next few seconds unfurled where Seb got up and I started looking up at the screen and going, oh, hang on a minute. He, he must, in, in hindsight, he must have thought we were both taking the piss because I thought he got <laughs> the silver medal. So I couldn't imagine that, you know, when I came into the finishing straight and he was still there and Jürgen Straum was there and I got past Jürgen, I assumed that he was sort of sitting 
absolutely limpet-like on me and was going to come back at me. And the last 40 metres, I'm just sort of trying to remember that at that point in a race, you're not a middle distance runner, you're a sprinter, you know, all the things you're told to do. Hold your form, you know, don't don't start rocking and rolling or, or climbing the ladder. And so I had naturally assumed that when I got across the line that he had to have been, you know, immediately behind me. So I sort of said, oh, well, there you go, you know, honours even. And he looked at me. So you you thought he'd won. I thought he'd got the silver <laughs> medal. So, you know, he must have thought this was a sort yeah. of collaborative northern... He shouldn't put his arm up in there. No, it was... You know, was, he was I think he was not, waving at his It, at it his was wife. an odd, odd um, thing to do. Yeah. But for me, the race was very easy. I have to say, because we ran a funereal first two laps, if you remember. I think we ran about 2.7 or 2.8. Mm. I mean, it was ridiculous, the first 800 metres. I mean, I think the English schools, girls were winning, you know, the 800 in a faster time than that. And then, you're right, Jürgen sort of, he had an odd style. He sort of looked down as he ran, and it was almost as though he was looking for a marker on the track because he got to 700 metres and he just went off like free beer. So in a way, it was a race that absolutely suited me, given that I was really the 800-metre runner in the field. So I sort of felt I'd had two warm-up laps and then I'd got an 800 metres. And Jürgen made it hard, you're right. He, it was each 100... If you look at the, the numbers, each 100 metres was incrementally a little bit quicker than the previous one. I think I ran about 146-something. For the last 800 metres, it was it was attritional, but only really over half the race. I remember celebrating with with Daly, who'd obviously won his uh, decathlon title, and Sharon Davis and a few of the guys. And I wasn't invited. You were probably <laughs> joking. Too, you were too young. You were probably in bed. I was out with the younger lot. No. Where did you go? I was. I we was, didn't go anywhere. I was going to say you couldn't no, well, go anywhere. No, well, I was in the village for two and a half weeks. I only left. I only left the village. On a few occasions, obviously the moments to, to train. And then I went to the British Olympic Association, had their big press conference. Um, and we were just about to start the press conference when an Italian who was complaining about gay rights in Russia chained himself to the railings outside the press conference. So the cars all turned around, the... Press conference was cancelled, so that was that was one of my occasions out of the village, and the only other occasions were the 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 six times that I raced. Seb Cole left Moscow with a gold and silver medal. Steve Cram with priceless experience when it came to big races. For the next few years, Cole and Cram rarely met on the track. However, one such occasion came in Zurich in 1981. <laughs> In nineteen eighty one for me was when I realised that yeah. you were very good. There was a there was, was a point that was Zurich at the end of the season and you came back very strongly on I think I broke the world record that night and you came back very strongly yeah. towards the end of the race. And I watched it on the video afterwards and I thought, This is somebody that is really going to cause us all a you know, be quite a handful in in the next few years. Like you said, eighty one for me was a was a year of okay. I'm 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 getting closer now. But that winter was a, was a big winter, and it was actually the year we've mentioned it before a couple of times. I remember sitting in Brendan's office, Brendan Foster, in around about April of nineteen eighty two, and talking through the season. And yes, I had we had the European Championships which yep. were coming up in Athens and the Commonwealth Games in Brisbane, at which I was expecting to meet both of you or mm. at least one of you in yeah. you know, and Brendan said so what have you and I said mm, you know and I was kind of talking about it and oh you know be good and he he abruptly interrupted me and just went oh when are you going to stop being a promising youngster and actually win something <laughs> I was, the Brendan Foster School of I Psychotherapy was, I was 21 <laughs> you know and I had these two guys still hanging around you know and they'd been breaking world records for fun in, in, in 81 and I was like okay you know and but he actually did help change my mindset. Not that I suddenly thought I can beat these both of these guys, but that actually that's what I should be aiming for that year. You're in '82, whether I came second or third or first or whatever, and a, a whole set of circumstances contrived to to sort of help that. Um, Steve got injured. 
I got injured and then got you sick. You got injured and then got sick and then we went to... But what I remember in Athens was that Seb was slated to do both the 8th and the 1500 metres. And we said, you when did our path start across? I, I hadn't had too many conversations with you up to yeah. that point. And you were beaten in Athens in the 800 metres, but you very kindly, one of the first people, you, I think, before you announced it, you came and told me you wouldn't be running the yeah, 1500 metres. I didn't want to leave you yeah. w- with any uncertainty about it. And all of a sudden I went from, ooh, you know... I wonder if I can beat Seb, you know, to win the fifteen hundred. I mean, I, and that, you know, I won't lie. I was obviously in that in that zone that year to 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 think about winning. To all of a sudden, he's he's coming. Just walk. I never forget. It was that we were staying in a hotel, mm-hmm. weren't we? And you came and told me, and you walked away, and I was like, "Oh my god, I think I'm going to win this." You know, now now you know it, it's a. I think you'd have won it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps, but but it was a it was that was the first time i think we'd had a, a conversation that wasn't hi how you doing well done you know that sort of thing and it wasn't a long conversation because it was a it wasn't a great one for Seb to have but i i absolutely 100% respected him from doing it because it as he said it gave me a bit more time rather than hearing it through another party or or through the press or whatever and yes i went on to win but Graham is going to hold on for gold Graham, running on courage gets the gold tear up the silver With both Co and Avert hampered by illness and injuries, Steve Cram entered 1983 as both European and Commonwealth champion. A great position to be in, as that year would see the first ever World Athletics Championships staged in Helsinki. To head into that 83 season, new World Championships um, thing, right? Okay, I haven't, I haven't beaten them yet, though. You know, so that was. Although I'd won the, the two championships, they weren't there. So to the vast majority of the media, I hadn't really yet arrived. And then I think I did race you at Gateshead at the beginning of 83, and you obviously weren't 100% and mm. in because I beat you in an 800. <laughs> Unheard of. So um, you know, I wasn't a great 800 meter runner. I was all right, but I got better at it. So I won this race at Gateshead, and then you announced you weren't, weren't going to the world championships. Actually, they were a great world championships. I remember a lot of your racing in great detail. And I was actually, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but I was pretty pleased of all the Brits that could have won it. It was Steve. And Graham leading with Scott coming out of Wheeler coming. And Graham has got it. He's three yards clear. Graham leading and Scott closes. But he won't catch him. And Graham wins the World Championship. Got it second. A week at third. Still to come on Reunited on Talk Sport. If I was going to get beaten in the Olympic final by anybody, then I, you know, I'd have rather it was Seb. I watched the gap opening as you, as you sort of went down the back straight and by 200 metres, I thought, well, it's, it's, it's game over. This is Reunited on Talk Sport. And on this episode, former athletes Seb Coe and Steve Cram relive the golden era of British middle distance running. But Graham is going to hold on for gold. 1984 was an Olympic year, and both Steve Cram and Seb Coe were focused on first qualifying and then winning in Los Angeles. But it wouldn't be straightforward. Steve Cram. They introduced a pre-selection process, which was based on 1983. So actually, Yvette and I got pre-selected which in the end was was a massive factor in me actually being in LA because um, I'll let Seb come in about his trials and tribulations, but I got injured in early 84, quite a serious ankle injury. I twisted an ankle really badly or pretty much broke the ankle. And so I didn't train and therefore couldn't race in the early part of the season. So was had that I not, high football? It was actually a, Coke, a famous Coke can. <laughs> um, I stood on a... a, 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 it's a I, I twisted my ankle on a... On a a soft drinks can that was under some leaves. I, I literally was doing a turnaround run out hard back. Well, you're actually training when you're I was training, and yeah. I, I, it was a place we called Tyne Dock Roundabout where we did a turnaround and turn come back, and there was a lot of uh, litter and stuff had gathered uh, in a like, little windy corner. And as I went to turn around, so I was a little bit off balance, foot on the can, boff, went over. Anyway, that kept me out for a long time. So I wasn't able to actually race. I wasn't at the trials or anything. Had I not been pre-selected, I probably wouldn't have been in Los Angeles. So yes, the year started out full of, I've got the world champs, it's all great. And then, and then it, the LA for quite a long time looked like it might not happen at all. 
And I actually, uh, you know, I'll let Seb tell his approach, but I ended up having to run a time trial event behind locked doors at Jarrow at my own track with Brendan and my coach and a couple of people to help her. And I still think to this day they lied because they said I ran 3.39. I'm not convinced I did, um, but that's what they told me I did, which, and we, we'd had an agreement beforehand. If I couldn't run 3.40, I wouldn't go to the games. And that was three weeks before. <laughs> and they came out away and said, you ran 3.39.6 or whatever it was. And I was like, oh, okay. And the press were outside and, and then we went and told them I would be going. In the meantime, I'll let you catch up because you'd had your own yeah. uh, whole set of different circumstances as to whether you'd be there or not. Well, I got selected for the eight, but then I had to, because I was chasing fitness, I guess a bit like you at that stage, mine wasn't an injury. As I said, I'd, I'd got six. So I didn't really train at all from August from the operation to, till about February. Uh, when I was sort of cleared healthy to, to, to start training again. So I was always sort of just trying to, and my dad described it at the time as training an eggshell, but it, it basically coalesced around me having a runoff against Peter Elliott at Crystal Palace, and Peter beat me. And I walked off the track, assuming that if I was going to LA at all, it would be at eight, that the chance of defending the title had gone. The selectors then made a decision to to back me, and of course, all hell let loose. Um, Peter had beaten me in the runoff, you know, and it was sort of, you know, it, it, it And Peter said it was a north-south divide until I pointed out to him I live six miles down the road from him in Sheffield. Um, but it, anyway, in the end, I think Peter got injured in the end too. I think, and that he didn't. He went, but he wasn't in, in yeah. great shape. Anyway, I got selected for the 1500. And then really, for me, it wasn't about racing. It was about actually getting enough petrol in the tank to, to get myself through the seven races in nine days. Like Moscow four years earlier, the 800 metres was first up. And like 1980, Co couldn't take the gold. This time not denied by Steve Ovette, but by Whacking Cruz. And it's interesting, so you see, I stepped off the track from the 800. Everybody's going, oh, you know, another silver medal from my... And I'm thinking, no, 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 this is very different. I got mugged by a teenager who was running, you know, 143 and little bits, and I'd run 143 and longer bits. But I took comfort from that, knowing that actually on current form, I had to be in reasonable nick. My only nervousness was... I'd got another three races against guys who, on paper, had not run the 800. Cruz decided not to run the 15. He was down to, to do both. And, and um, so, so for me, it was, I had an interesting conversation a few weeks before with my old man, and he just said to me, which, one of the, which of the two do you want to win? Because you can't win both here. You just don't have enough. So I said, well, I'd, I'd quite like the best shot to be at defending the 15. And he said, right, well, because he came from a racing cycle background. So his view was treat it a bit like the Tour de France. You're not going to go in on the first day as fit as you're going to have to be on the final day and use the racing alongside the sort of late nature of your training program to sort of just get yourself into the, the mental and physical shape to, to deal and I remember the, the, the only the day I really struggled, interestingly, was the semi-final of the 1500, where I just, you know, I just knew I, I was on my sixth race and just, just feeling a little leggy, to be honest. And I, that was the only time I thought, well, if that's the semi and I've got to, you know, turn this on again tomorrow, maybe I've just pushed this a little bit too far. It's funny, that's exactly the, what was being rammed into me was use the heat in the semi to get fit for the final yeah. I mean it's a stupid thing you would never choose that as a coaches, yeah you, you, you would never choose it as a ideal preparation um but it's it is that idea that that you know you've I mean for you as as well there's a psychological element to this which we're not really touching on but it is about you know kind of arriving on the start line with all of the things or you're know, physically ready but also psychologically prepared for for what you can deliver and I think you know look if I was going to get beaten Olympic final by anybody then I, you know, I'd have rather it was Seb. Steve Cram, Seb Coe and Steve Ovette the great British trio laden with championship medals and world records 
would all start the men's 1500 meter final at the 1984 Olympic Games. It was funny because from my point of view, you know, I, I was, it was too fast for my liking. You know, I, I, it was, it had been too fast early on. I was really hoping for this slow race and that somehow I could get in front in the last, last 400 meters, particularly 300 to go. And, and in an ideal scenario, I would have gone to the front before the attempt I made, but the pace was, was quick enough. And so I waited, and there's, there is that iconic picture, of, and I think it's the only picture, uh, the two of us and Steve together, just for a fleeting moment. Just before the 300 meter mark? Uh, just, just, just at the bell, because he stepped oh, off just bell? after the yeah. bell, yeah, because yeah. st Steve stepped off yeah. the track. So as we got round that bend, I didn't know if it had stepped out, but I knew if I was going to win it, I had to make this move. So down the back straight, and Seb was holding the inside line. And I knew, I, I, got a, I just about got alongside him, and he just made a move to hold me off. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I wouldn't say I gave up. I absolutely didn't give up. And then I thought I'll have another go um, round the bend or going into the home straight, by which time um, I'd, I was running out of gas. It was a great race, you know what I mean? As I said, I, I have no, I have absolutely no issues around what happened that day because I, I ran as well as I could. You'd have it written down that, you know, the double Olympic champion was the, the one who got ahead of you then, then then I'm absolutely fine with that. Well, I'm glad it was me too. Yeah, <laughs> so am I, yeah. 1984 would be the last time Steve Cram and Seb Coe would face each other at an Olympics. But the rivalry would rumble on for a few more years around the tracks of the world. Seb Coe. There are years in your career where you are just in a purple patch and you step out onto the track and you basically know you're not going to lose. And for me, that season actually was 1981, where, you know, I'd come out of 1980, you know, the, the sort of pressure cooker of the games. And I just remember saying to myself, I'm just going to have some fun this year. I'm going to race places I want to race. And I think that was, 1985 was your season. Yeah, you same just, thing. You just weren't going to be beaten. I remember watching, we're doing this interview here in, in Monaco, well, you know, 20 miles up the road, you had that magnificent race with Saidoita, broke the world record. Um, and then no excuses at all. You know, I went to the Golden Mile in, in Oslo and you destroyed us. You were off and I just, <laughs> I watched the gap opening <laughs> as, you, as you sort of went down the back straight and by 200 metres, I thought, well, it's, it's, it's game over. And they come around with 200 to go and Cram is testing Cole. And the world champion, the European champion, the Commonwealth champion, the world record holder at 1,500 metres, majestically comes striding away. This time, is it to crack the world record? Yes, it is. 3.46.3. Gonzalez second, go third, Scott four. Yeah, and, and as Seb said, if without without any championships, like he had in 81, it is a bit about, I wonder how fast I can go. You know, mm. there's, there's a bit of that. So I did run 800,000 metres, 1,500 the mile. You know, it, it is one of my regrets that that year I didn't focus a little bit more on the 1,500 and the mile because I think that 1,500 in Nice, which was in early July, late June, early July, yeah. I didn't really run another serious one all year. You know, I kind of got wrapped up in doing other things, 2,000 yeah. metres and... Yeah. Yeah. and, and when you're in those purple patches, the, it, later on in your career, you think, oh, I wonder how fast I really could have gone. Because mm. even, even the racing, it was a great race against Saidoita, but it wasn't set up for me or Saida. It had actually been set up for Joachim Cruz, who went out the back door after about 1,100 metres. And we ran kind of a 53 last lap together. And probably if you wanted to run as fast as you could, we would have set it up a bit differently. Oh, and, you could and, have yeah, probably so, gone out. There was at least another second and a so half in there. But hey, you know, you, you, but you're right. Eighty-five is one of those years where you know I had a few little niggly things. But you just every time you put your foot on the track, it's about it was more about how fast can I run. I wasn't having to worry about tactics. It was just let's just try and push this. During that golden summer of 1985, Steve Cram would break three world records in the space of 19 days. It's gonna be so close. Cram wins, and the world record has gone. Steve Owen, Dave has gone from the list. In 1986, the duo was set to first meet at the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh, and then again at Stuttgart for the European Championship. But Coe withdrew from the first potential meeting with injury. Steve Cram. 
I was going to contest the 800 and 1500 in the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh, and of course it was probably going to be, because it was in a home country, it was going to be big news. And I was going to be racing Seb for the first time in 800, and I was so keen to make sure I was in as good a shape as I could be. And I think I went to those games so fired up, and I knew I was in good nick. Sadly for everybody else, they got the sort of they got a bit of a whipping because I really was ready for him, and he wasn't there in the end. It's Cram, the favourite in front, and going away, and surely going away for an outstanding goal. One forty-three, two in in, yeah. in pretty rotten conditions, and yeah. but you know, I said, I mean, it was Peter Elliott, it was Tom McKean, and the fifth hundred meter field wasn't wasn't super, but. Um, and I, I then carried over. We then did meet each other in Stuttgart. And if anything, I think for the first time I was, I had no reason to be, but because things went so well for me in Edinburgh. And so three weeks later, I turned up in Stuttgart and Seb's got himself together. And I was a bit overconfident going into the 800 metres, which I had no right to be. And um, he came back and won. A dramatic move on the outside by Sebastian Coe. Can this be his first title? Brown appears to be beaten. And Coe means to make this his. Sebastian Coe wins at last. McKean is second. Brown is third. Goal. I was beginning to sense that that was getting to the point where there weren't, there weren't going to be too many opportunities to win an 800-metre title. I got a reasonably creditable bronze in, in 78. I'd missed out on 82 and I got a silver in 82 and 86 and, you know, the, the European Championships are every four years then. Now, you know, it's a, with a, with a two-year gap, it, you might not have thought in quite those terms, but I thought, well, the next one's going to be 1990. 88 is going to be a challenge because I'm going to be sort of 32. So 86 for me was very much about wanting to win an eight, a recognised 800-metre title. I just wasn't expecting Seb. I don't know why. And I remember he came by and I went, you've got to be kidding me, you know, kind of. <laughs> and I, it actually threw me because uh, Tom um, got past me as well that, because and after I finished third. It was a British 1-2-3. Seb's obviously delighted because he's, he's, won his, he's finally won his, his major gold medal at 800 metres. I couldn't be more annoyed with myself. I mean, I genuinely was... was was very annoyed with myself. And, of course, it's a British 1-2-3. Coming back to that thing about people at home watching, all going, yeah, brilliant, it's a British 1-2-3, let's see the lads all go and do a lap of honour. I didn't. I had nothing to celebrate. I was I was, I was, was crestfallen. I've, I, I mean, someone should have smacked my face on the rostrum as well. I couldn't have looked more miserable. Um, We've all had those moments. Yeah, and, of course, you know, it's a British 1-2-3 on the rostrum, and I, didn't, I wasn't playing. But my, my tactic that day was actually completely counter to what I normally did. I think I think there was a view that I would probably try and run this from the front, but I sat right off the back. And there was a moment where actually I remember some of the field are looking around to see, you know, where I was. And I was actually, because you're so tall, I was. I think I was so tight up behind you. Yeah. I think you looked round at one point. You probably looked straight yeah. over. I don't my think head. I saw you. I think that's you, why when when you came past yeah. me, it was such no, a. No, that was a deliberate. I <laughs> deliberately decided I'm going to do something slightly different. Today. my old man was having a fit in the sta- in the yeah. stadium because I'd agreed with him that I would take it out hard. Mm. But I thought, no, no. I, I wish just, you had. Just instinctively, I thought I'm going to try and come from behind on this. It was it was great because actually again it, it, you know then we then we reconvened yeah and then a you, then you did me in the fifteen hundred and I just decided right I ain't making any yeah, mistakes no, this you time didn't, so, no I know yeah. um, and that you know and, and that was it you know so he won the mm. gold in the eight I won the, I won the fifteen hundred and and then you know our careers contrived in such a way that we never we never got to really compete against each other again sadly. Seb Coe and Steve Cram would never face each other again at a major championship. It was the end of an era, a time when athletics dominated the sporting media. Sebco. It was massive. I think the, I think the, fifteen hundred meter final in Moscow still sits in the top ten, fifteen um, audiences on the BBC. Uh, we didn't quite tip Torval and Dean in '84, but it, it it's up there. Um, in '81. When I went to, I think it might have been Zurich, actually. 
they, for the very, very first time ever in the history of the BBC, it was the nine o'clock news slot, they broke in live to, to cover the race. And I always remember, I think it was John Phillips, who was a producer at the time, was saying, no pressure here, but his actual final words to me before the race was, if, if you don't win this race, I probably lose my job, <laughs> which is a sort of slight, slight variation on, on pressure. And, you know, it, OK, it was a very much less fractured media landscape. You could get those big audiences and the BBC was was preeminent in it, its coverage. It had got the, you know, the, the giants of commentary, David Coleman, Ron Pickering. I mean, they, they don't, you know, sparing this guy's blushes, you know, and Steve's up there with in that category, but they were massive. They were... They were big, big characters and great commentators, and they brought a sort of magic to the to the night as well. Later, when I broke world record in Nice and in Oslo, both ITV and BBC televised it at the same time. Football matches, you had an FA Cup final, you could watch it on the BBC or ITV. You know, you had a choice. Now, BBC would get the big audience. But the combined audience, so imagine as a viewer... Mm. You're kind of going, oh, there's athletics on from Zurich or from Oslo on both channels at the same time. You couldn't miss it. Every newspaper had one or two minimum athletics correspondents. It's really hard to explain to people you know, what the impact in the summer of athletics was in, in the 80s. So, decades later, how would both athletes sum up their careers? The performances that not just us, but those around us were giving would stand up today still. In fact, you know, I'd, I'd quite like to be racing today, um, to yeah, be honest. So um, would I. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a tongue-tied media production for TalkSport. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.